The first uh, reading is from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, and reading the first 14 verses. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elishah, son of Shaphan, and Jemarah, son of Ilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I am sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of God, the Lord, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, and give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me, with, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, said the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. To Revelation chapter 21, we're going to read a variety of verses from this chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. 
And he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Then verses 22 to the end. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practice abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then we turn to chapter 22 and read verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, Come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The question I'd like us to hold in our minds this morning, and which I hope our engagement with Scripture will shed some light on, is the question of, what in the world are we here for? What in the world are we here for? And as with all interesting and important questions, I think it bears a, a little unpacking. Specifically, I wonder who we might think is the we here. What in the world are we here for? Do we hear this as applying to us as a collection of individuals? Perhaps asking us why we are here at this church this morning. Or do we hear it applying to us as a congregation? Asking us collectively why we exist here in this building, in this city. Or maybe we should hear it in a wider sense than this. Perhaps as applicable to the church universal asking us what the point of Christian churches are in general. Or maybe we should even hear it at an existential level, applying to all of humanity, asking what, if anything, is the point of human life itself. 
well, all of which are valid questions, and subsumed within them are whole disciplines of philosophy, ethics, ecclesiology, and theology. So perhaps we might need to narrow it down a little bit for our focus this morning. I'm going to suggest that we hear our question of what in the world are we here for as being directed primarily at the church in the universal sense. Why is there a church in the world? It's often said that the Bible starts with the vision of a garden and ends with the vision of a city. And this can be a helpful way of thinking about the trajectory that Scripture takes us on with its roller coaster journey from one vision of perfection to another, encompassing the vast sweep of human history along the way. But another way of thinking about the Bible is that it is an attempt to explore through story and history, through poetry and parable, what the purpose might be for God having called some people to be his people. It's there, of course, in the moment of revelation given to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and the spiritual ancestor of Jews, Muslims, and Christians. The covenant that God made with Abraham was that his descendants, all of them, would be the people of God, and that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. So, according to the covenant with Abraham, the purpose of calling one group of humans out of the vast swathe of humanity, calling one group of humans into a relationship with God, has always been that the blessing will go beyond that group. The outworking of this, then, is that any form of religion that seeks to keep the blessings of their relationship with God to themselves and those like them is a betrayal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So the first part of an answer to our question of what in the world are we here for surely has to be that at the very least, we are here to be good news to those beyond our own community. We're here to be good news to the lost and the lonely and the least. We're here to be good news to those who are not like us. And here we come to my main point for this morning, which I'll give away now so that we can think about it as we go through. I think it's this, that we're here in this world to build a vision for the common good. Those who built the Tower of Babel were trying to build their way to heaven. Those who built the tabernacle were trying to build a home for God on earth. Solomon built his temple to keep God close to the seat of royal power. And Ezra rebuilt it as a symbol of ethnic exclusivity. But all these attempts to build the kingdom of God on earth ultimately failed. Because God it turns out, cannot be reached by human efforts, and neither can God be contained by human buildings, and nor can God be found exclusively with just one people group. Because the good news of the New Testament witness is that God is encountered on the earth, not through a sacred building or a tower of strength, but through the person of Jesus himself, as he is revealed by his spirit through the people that bear his name of God, the church. Maybe this is what we're here for, to reveal God to the world. 
And I want to suggest that if we are those people, then the reason we're here is not to build God a house, nor to build a tower of strength, nor to build power, but to build a vision for the common good. We're here to be a blessing to those who are not part of us. We're here to be good news to all people. And so we come to that fascinating vision of the church on the earth, which we meet in the biblical image of the New Jerusalem. Now, many readers of this image take it as a vision of the future, something that will happen at some point far from now as this mysterious celestial city bangs down from the heaven and settles on the earth with something of a bump. I have to say that this approach has never seemed all that persuasive to me. After all, what earthly use today is a vision of the distant future. I think it's much more likely that what we've got going on here is a metaphor, a compelling picture which invites further reflection as to what it might mean for us to be the church in our time and our place. So in this way, I think that the New Jerusalem is just one of the many images that the Bible uses for the people of God, for the church in the here and now. It's a picture of the people of God on the earth. And I think it helps us address our question of what on earth we're here for. Now, bear with me for a moment on this. But I'd like us to think about the utility supplies in the New Jerusalem. Specifically, the supply of light and water. The text that Frank so beautifully read for us just now clearly tells us that the city has no need for either the natural lights of the sun and the moon or for the artificial light that comes from lamps. Rather, the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. In fact, it has so much light that it shines brightly enough for all the other nations to walk by its light. And similarly, it seems to have a never-ending supply of fresh water, enough not only for its own citizens, but enough to quench the thirst of anyone who wishes to come and take the water of life as a gift. And this superabundance of light and water is in stark contrast to all other human cities. The city of Jerusalem itself, the one that still sits on a hill in Israel, actually has no natural water supply at all. Until very recent times, it was entirely dependent on a water tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel that you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, if you're into such things, which brings water in from the spring that's outside of the city to make sure that there was enough water supply to the city should it ever be besieged. And the supply of light to keep city streets safe at night in the ancient world was, until the invention of electricity and gas supplies, dependent on lamps and oil. We see this reflected, of course, in Jesus' famous parable about the virgins and their oil lamps, and have they got enough oil with them to last through the night whilst they're out waiting for the bridegroom to come. And here, considering light and water, we find ourselves in the world of the economics of the common good. I'm grateful to Tim for putting me on to this, so thank you, Tim. In any city and in any society, there are certain things that it makes more sense to enact collectively. The lighting of the streets is a great example, although the principle can be extrapolated across many areas of need and provision. The thing about streetlights is that no one streetlight 
exclusively benefits any one individual. The system only works when all the lights are working for the benefit of all the inhabitants. They are for the common good. It makes no sense for someone to arrange to light only the part of the pavement that they're walking along at that given moment. It would be a, just a, a very strange use of resources. I mean, very counterproductive. This, in a nutshell, is the economics of the common good. The same is true of water supplies and sewage systems and public transport and healthcare provision. From Roman aqueducts to the National Health Service to Obamacare, enlightened rulers have sought to implement policies for the common good. And I think the image of the New Jerusalem as a city with enough light to shine across all the nations and with enough water to supply the thirst of any who need it invites us to reflect on a vision of the church in the world for the common good. If we are the New Jerusalem, then we are called to be the light for the world, the place where people can get the water that they need. What in the world are we here for? We're here in the world for the good of all. In fulfillment, theologically speaking, of the covenant between God and Abraham. It's a spiritual vision, but it has some very practical outworkings. All too often, churches have come to see themselves as existing in the world for their own benefit, with the church, in effect, functioning as a closed-set club, maybe with admission upon request. The purpose of such club churches varies, from the basic Christian social club church, to groups drawn together around a particular understanding of a theological issue, to single-issue churches, which focus on anything from a specific style of music to, I don't know, a distinctive architectural style. And at one level, there's nothing wrong with any of these. I mean, social interaction is a gift of grace. It's good to go to church and meet your friends, isn't it? Theological issues do matter. So does music and architecture. But the problem with closed-set churches is that they primarily exist for the benefit of their own members. They build for themselves rather than for the common good. Many of the buildings that house churches today are there because churches have decided to build themselves a home, to provide somewhere for the people of God to come and worship their God. Kind of modern versions of the ancient temple, really. We tend to describe churches like this as our church, where we come to meet with our God, encountering him in the sanctuary we have built for him. However, this is not true of all church buildings. Think of the great Methodist mission churches of the London suburbs, built to offer transformation to the poorest and most deprived areas of the Victorian city, promoting the temperance movement in the face of the evils of alcoholic addiction and supporting the suffragette cause for the emancipation of women. They were built for the common good. And I want to say also, think of this building in which we now sit. Built not just to house a congregation who come to worship God on the Lord's Day, but to be a place of Baptist mission and witness to the center of the city. Strategically placed on the boundary between wealth and what used to be poverty immediately behind us with the express intention of bringing the two together in ways that will transform the city for the common good. We are the heirs of a vision to build for the common good, 
just as with the spiritual descendants of Abraham and his vision, that all the people of God are there in the world for the blessing of all peoples. We're called to be this new Jerusalem, offering light and water to the city outside the doors. The question then, of course, is what is offering light and water to look like in our complex technological 24-hour city? What does it mean for us to build a vision for the common good? Where are the needs of our city? What would it mean for us, as the people of God, to shine light into the darkest corners of London, exposing the oppressive systems and practices that enslave people's bodies and souls? What would it mean for us, as the people of God, to offer refreshing water to those who are being poisoned by the polluted atmosphere of hatred and cynicism and despair. And it's here, I think, that we need to hear the words of Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon from our first reading. You may remember the story. The Babylonians invaded Jerusalem about 600 years before the time of Jesus. They sacked the city, destroyed the temple, and then carried a swathe of the Jewish population off to exile in Babylon. And it was to these exiles, far from home, with no buildings of their own and no temple in which to worship, that Jeremiah wrote. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile in, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The world's welfare has a very contemporary ring, doesn't it? But if you've seen I, Daniel Blake, Ken Loach movie exposing the gaps in the welfare system in our country at the moment. The call of God to those in exile in Babylon was to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon. In the book of Revelation, where we meet our image of the church as the New Jerusalem, the name Babylon keeps cropping up and it's used as a code name for the Roman Empire. And the picture it paints is of the people of God there in the midst of the empire for good for the common good. And the gates of this vision of the church, the New Jerusalem, are wide open. Its light shines brightly beyond its own walls and its pure water is available to all. This is not a vision of the church battened down, defensively protecting itself whilst entering survival mode and hoping for better times to come. It's a vision of the church militant in the world for the good of all courageously seeking the welfare of the city. Well, for Babylon, read Rome, read London. We're not here to build a temple in which we can worship our God. We're not here to build a tower of strength. We're not here to build political power. We're not here to build walls around our communities. We're here in the world to throw open the doors, to shine brightly, to build a vision for the common good, to seek the welfare of the city to which we've been sent. We're not building a building. We're building a new world. We're here to learn together, 
to see the world differently, to see the world as God sees it, and to speak and live into being an alternative way of being human before God, which is light and water to those whose lives are in darkness and whose souls are parched. The language of the common good has its origins in Catholic social teaching. So I thought I'd see what the current Pope had to say about this. Pope Francis has said, indifference to our neighbor and to God represents a real temptation to us Christians. Usually, when we are healthy and comfortable, we forget about others, something God the Father never does. We're unconcerned with their problems, their sufferings, and the injustices they endure. Our hearts grow cold. As long as I'm relatively healthy and comfortable, I don't think about those less well-off. Today, this selfish attitude of indifference has taken on global proportions to the extent that we can speak of a globalization of indifference. This is a problem, says the Pope, which we as Christians need to confront. We cannot turn away. We cannot turn in on ourselves and our own privileges and our relationship with God. We are called to face outwards and stare unflinchingly at the world beyond our doors because we are here on the earth to be good news in the name of Jesus Christ for all. We're here to build a vision for the common good. Because if we don't articulate heaven's perspective on the earthly situation, well, who on earth is going to? So as we live in a world of growing fear, with the whiff of fascism in the air and growing suspicion of the other and fear of the foreigner, with poverty and homelessness literally on our doorstep and mental health services in crisis at the very point where they needed the most and with social care and security and welfare facing cuts of catastrophic levels, maybe this is what in the world we're here for. And so we're called to look beyond ourselves and to take into action our conviction that in Christ every life matters and that Christ always has a bias to the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. We're called to build alliances with others and to speak truth to power and to hold to account those who hold power. We're called to engage politics and charity and to build a community of reciprocity. We're called to run night shelters and day centers, to use our resources to see the marginalized included and the poor lifted up and the vulnerable made strong. All in the name of Christ, we are called to build a vision for the common good where the absolute love of God for each and every person is at the heart of all that we do. Because it will be in and through us that utopian religion will find its pragmatic reality. We are where dreams become real and visions get built. We are the outpost on the earth of the new world that is coming. And we live into being in our midst the reality for which we pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, that the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven.